step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Oh! It's another knockdown! He's not getting up, Jim! He's not getting up, Jim! He's not getting up! No, he's been knocked out! Without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Tuesday, August 14th, and this is the Fistionados podcast. I'm your host, Evan Rutkowski former HBO Sports Marketing Executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinadospod. A lot to get through this week, so let's get right into it. Taking a look back on Saturday, August 4th, HBO had a very exciting night of fights where Elider Storm Alvarez wins by KO7 over Sergey Crusher Kovalev, and Dmitry Bivol wins a lopsided unanimous decision against Isaac Chalemba. The card does an average audience of 731,000 viewers, peaking at 813,000. Earlier that night, the PBC's card had Andre Berto winning a split decision over Devin Alexander in a close fight, Peter Quillen and Sergey Sergey Lipinets both winning by unanimous decision over Jaylian Love and Eric Bonet, respectively. This card was on Fox. It does an average of nine hundred forty-one thousand viewers, peaking at one point two six million. So let's go back to HBO to start out. We saw Bevel give. He looked good early on. He got some quality rounds in a fight that. As it went on, ended up not being the most TV-friendly fight. And then we saw a really strong matchup in the main event where Alvarez look, looks good early. Kovalev adjusts well, and just as Kovalev is strongly asserting himself, Alvarez wants a big punch and just ends it. Several takeaways here. First, the rating. Though on the surface, it seems good. Really, it wasn't that impressive. Kovalev's last fight averaged 599,000 viewers. It peaked at 674. But remember, that was up against the Wilder Ortiz fight on Showtime, which did like 1.2 million. The month of August is traditionally a month where fights get lower ratings, but you have got to think HBO wanted to do better here. Four or five years ago, this would have been the kind of fight that easily hits a million viewers, like no problem at all for HBO. You know, peaking over 800K isn't terrible, but I just don't want it trumpeted around as some big win for HBO. It's not. Like, 731,000 average viewers isn't a great number in the context of, of overall HBO programming. 
second, it's it's a little frustrating that we don't seem headed for a Kovalev Bevel fight. Like this was originally supposed to be Marcus Brown, who ended up looking awful on the PVC. So I guess bravo to HBO matchmaking here. Like they were too good for their own good. But I mean, you know, you go back to it. Like we, the whole point of this has kind of been building to that Kovalev Bevel fight. It's a little bit disappointing. We're not going to get that. And it's really got to be disappointing for Bevel. I mean, he didn't look great here. He looked good last time and we saw sort of saw a coming out party, but that would have been his really big opportunity. And clearly the way Kovalev looked here, it was there for him. You know, it was, it was really there for him. So he's going to miss out on that opportunity. And that sort of leads to my third point here in terms of takeaways. There's a big question of what happens next. You know, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, you've heard this before, but if this is truly Kovalev's last fight, then he leaves a really impressive legacy. Most people think his legacy fights are the Andre Ward fights, but his legacy is actually breaking the system when it comes to Russian fighters. He was really the best example of this, and there are certainly others, no doubt, like the Provodnikov is another great example too, but Kovalev came here without any fanfare. He wasn't one of the chosen ones in terms of amateur pedigree, like a Golovkin or, you know, probably more importantly, a, a Lomachenko, but Golovkin still had that silver medal. Kovalev didn't have anything like that. I mean, he reached unheard of heights by unifying all the titles except the WBC and taking on all comers. I mean, he was really looked at as the guy in the division for a long period of time, even though Stevenson held the lineal title, for whatever that's worth to people. In my eyes, he beat Andre Ward in their first fight. If this truly is his last fight, then the division is left in a weird spot where ostensibly every network could have one of the four titles very soon. And remember, HBO still has Bevel, Showtime has Stevenson, but he'll likely be fighting ESPN's Bosnick soon. DeZone has Biterbiev. And then Alvarez has a title that could end up back on Showtime, or maybe for another fight on HBO, or maybe he goes to DAZN. Who knows? The options for Alvarez are a little bit weird. No one really knows much about him. Obviously, you'd like to think he has another fight on HBO, especially if it is the Kovalev rematch. But he could also go back and do a fight in Montreal where he gets paid on an optional defense. Lots of stuff up in the air. One of my very early episodes of this podcast was all about this division. It's a fascinating division. It's loaded with talent. Every network is invested in it. There isn't a pay-per-view star. It's right for network trades or stealing of talent. It could produce a series of fights that work towards unification, or we could see a run of frustrating matchups where each network keeps their own title list, and they never really work towards that unification, quote-unquote, big-money fight. I mean, everything's in play in this division. There are some encouraging signs here. You know, if Kovalev does take the rematch and continues to fight on, that's a big fight on HBO maybe later this year or at the start of next year, depending on how long Kovalev needs after a KO like that. And then, like I mentioned earlier, Stevenson Gavaznik, they're supposed to fight, I guess, on November 3rd. And I guess that's two fights like of good level opponents in a row for Stevenson. There, there's promising signs. But we also could head down this other weird path where 
every network basically has their own championship title and, and we don't see those big fights that we want to see. On to the PBC card. I'm not going to spend as much time here because in my eyes, these weren't really meaningful fights. The main event was a close fight. I'm not sure it was a good fight, though. These fight the, these guys have been in tough battles, and I respect their careers. Like I really do respect them, but I don't really know who called for this fight. I don't know what it leads to. A KO was always unlikely, and I'm not sure it ever really made sense. Like The ratings reflect all of this as well. And at a time when the PBC seems to be making a deal with Fox to actually get license fees to put on some of these shows, they're not enticing audiences at all with these types of fights. I've been over this in previous pods, but Saturday nights on Fox are now a huge opportunity, and this kind of rating just won't cut it at all. The PBC, they aren't helping their cause at all with this. You know, like I said, maybe the PBC starts getting a license fee from Fox, we'll see a different caliber of fights. But this type of thing, it just feels like they're playing out the string. They're feeding some older B-side opponents, you know, who need to stay active. They're just giving these guys some fights. All the fights that got made here completely reflect just total apathy that comes with the matchups you're seeing. It's like we saw a couple comeback fights followed by a main event where the winner doesn't really move their cause further at all. Like, do I see, need to see Andre Berto fighting a top five welterweight after this? Like, no, I don't. And given how familiar most core boxing fans are with the style of fights that both Berto and Alexander make, I don't know who needed to see this fight to figure out like what either of them should do next. You know, bottom line here, I don't see a scenario where I'm excited to see any of these guys fighting a top welterweight. I don't know. I mean, Sergey Libanets. Maybe I want to see him again. Maybe it's different. I don't know. Let's move on. On Saturday, August 11th, Facebook Watch has Jojo Diaz defeating Jesus Rojas by unanimous decision in a decent fight. I watched this after the fact, and I knew going into it, the fight, I knew it was all going to be sort of a shit show in terms of the broadcast. But let's start by looking at the positives here. At the time of this recording... Facebook already had 3.9 million views for this fight. And I'm not sure exactly how many people watched it live. I'm not sure how long they watched it for. But that's a pretty large amount of people who at least sampled it. I think they're calling a view three seconds. That is typically the standard measure for a view of an advertisement on Facebook. If that's what they're using it, take that 3.9 million with a grain of salt but remember, we're going to, I'm about to break down ratings for ESPN, and ESPN deemed what Top Rank is doing with fr a fraction of 3.9 million as a major success. So 3.9 million is a, it's a big audience. Facebook deserves a chance to get this right, and I think eventually they will. I can do a whole episode on this. At the moment, though, like, let's just let this breathe. My takeaways right now are the following. Remember, this is a lower-cost streaming show. Like Jojo Diaz was the main event A-site here, and his purse was fifty grand. It's not that much. It's a fraction of what you get on a on a bigger platform. I mean, Facebook's goals are different as well. This is really important here. 
they aren't selling ads against the show. And what I mean by that is unlike ESPN, which sells ads against top-ranked boxing based on the ratings that the show delivers and the demos that are watching, Facebook isn't really doing that. They're doing a version of it, but they care way more about engagement and usage time in hours and minutes on their platform. Remember, Facebook doesn't sell boxing. They sell you. So the more you engage and the more you let them know about yourself, the better off they are. If an old school Friday Night Fights level of matchup at the right price does it for Facebook, then that's a tiny cost given the information and engagement they're going to get. Given all of their corporate issues that they've had with their audience just starting to come to grips with how their business model works and how intrusive it really is, they are now being forced to use programming to appease and engage their users. So especially if you are comfortable with how this works for them, give them a real chance to get it right and build. I saw lots of complaints about the stream cutting out and the announcers. Look, all I got to say is this is free. It's not intended to be the highest level of fights. Give everyone involved a chance. More on this later. I'm sure after a few of these, I will review what they're doing and how their broadcast works. But for now, we got to give them another chance. For the deep dive this week, I wanted to talk about the top-ranked ESPN deal, which they signed about a year ago as a four-year deal, and it has been ripped up and redone as a seven-year deal that will run until 2025 per a recent PR announcement. I want to go beyond just what they've done in TV ratings and viewership, but I want to look at why Top Rank sought out a different partner than premium pay cable. And I also want to get into, well, let's say I want to get out of the very myopic world of boxing and look at the programming in a greater context of why ESPN views it a success. You know, what else they're doing and how it complements their programming. But first, let's just comment on the obvious. I was going to do this episode originally on how the top-ranked deal has gone with ESPN, but they wouldn't be getting a new deal like this unless it was a major success. If you're a regular listener of this show, you probably had a good idea that I was going to say it was going well. There are a lot of things I like about it, not just for top-ranked, but for ESPN too. So let's start by looking at the landscape that led to TopRank wanting to move their product off of premium pay cable. TopRank has been around for a long time. If anyone out there hasn't been to a live show and seen the video they always play before the main event, like the This Is Boxing little thing, at least look it up on YouTube. Like I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. Especially if you're in an arena before a big main event, I mean, it gives you the chills. Like they put on a good show, they have a deep history, like, the fights usually move at a good pace. They make the event comfortable with music. Like, they have a long tradition of a very, like, good overall boxing programming of solid in-house matchmakers who really develop fighters into attractions. And for years, they were HBO's primary supplier of content as they developed all kinds of pay-per-view stars. I'm not going to bother listening to them, but... In recent times, you know the deal. They developed Oscar, Floyd, Manny, bevy of Hispanic stars that put on a lot of great fights. 
as time went on, Oscar left and found a golden boy. As Floyd left and went down his own path, sort of in partnership with Golden Boy, Top Rank had a major dilemma. I think you can really trace this back to the last few years of the Ross Greenberg era, where Top Rank felt especially at the mercy of HBO, both in terms of license fees that HBO would pay for fights on the network, as well as how the HBO pay-per-view machine would function. This dilemma is... I guess if I'm going to boil it down, it's like, how do you control your own destiny? You see, promoters back then and still even today have two real sources of income which keep their companies alive. One is they get license fees from HBO or Showtime. And two is they put on a pay-per-view that sells well. The license fees from HBO and Showtime are limited real estate. In other words, Once those networks get their budget for sports, Top Rank can't change those budgets, and they're at the mercy of what those budgets are. Pay-per-view is really the only place where they control their own destiny, and even that is pretty limited because the marketplace will only support a few pay-per-view shows over the course of the year, and as you've heard before in this podcast, cable companies take a huge cut of that. So the only ways to make the pie bigger, so to speak, are to convince HBO or Showtime to buy more of your fights rather than another promoter, get them to increase their boxing budgets, or develop a pay-per-view star like a Manny or a Floyd who is constantly doing big numbers. And one of the things that I respect most about what Top Rank did with this ESPN deal is they went out and convinced another network to enter into the boxing world. They actually showed empirical evidence to ESPN that this move was good for business and convinced ESPN to take a shot on them. That is huge. I mean, they literally made the pie bigger for the entire sport, not just them. Now, how do we get to that point specifically? Well, there was lots of drama. I mean, obviously it took top rank taking Pacquiao over to Showtime for the Shane Mosley fight. Then it took a complete reconciliation with HBO on a very high level, which involved Ross Greenberg's departure, Ken Hirschman's hiring, which didn't improve things much, but most importantly, just sort of a constant erosion of HBO's boxing budget, which I totally understand if you're top rank. After all that crazy drama, in order to make your company survive, you need to have a very difficult self-examination and ask if you're prepared for whatever comes next in the boxing business. And to top rank's credit, they decided they weren't ready and they took action. They developed an internal team that was capable of creating all the pay-per-view marketing assets so they wouldn't have to rely on HBO to do that. They nurtured relationships not only with top execs at HBO rather than just sports execs, but they did it all around town. They did it with everybody. They educated themselves and invested in metrics to show who their audience was and what the advantages are to other networks of having an audience like that. You know, I've seen this firsthand. I've worked on lots of pay-per-views, and Todd was always the most engaged. He was always incredibly intrigued by what the marketing plans were, what the assets were going to be. He always wanted to be educated as to what the newest targeting techniques were. And it's like this kind of thinking, this desire to take steps to not totally rely on what HBO and Showtime were doing for the fights which allowed Top Rank to build a case to ESPN that their boxing was worth investing money in. That, to me, is very impressive. And historically, 
there are very few times in the history of boxing where a powerhouse network like ESPN has entered into the sport at a high level. And look, I don't want this show just to be pumping up top rank. There are several promotional companies I, that I think do a great job. And to give credit where credit is due, like main events made a similar deal with NBC Sports Channel on a lower level that went on for a few years. And there are other promoters out there that are very strong and they don't just take TV license fees and put on fights at Indian casinos. I mean, we just got done talking about Golden Boy and pseudonym main events joining them, convincing Facebook to start showing boxing. I also want to talk about why this deal made a lot of sense for ESPN and why and, and what both parties mean by getting treated like a professional sports league. But before we even get into the ratings that Top Rank has done for its shows, and I actually don't want to talk too much about those numbers because they're out there. They're easy to find. You can look them up every single time. I think it's really important here to get some context as to what other programming on ESPN is doing. I've touched on this before, but the point gets driven home when you look at the scope of everything else they're doing. The centerpiece of ESPN's schedule is Monday Night Football. And let's be clear, football in general, especially the NFL, is in its own category and nothing remotely comes close to it. As we look at the dollars that ESPN is spending on other sports, it's clear as to why they would want to diversify and find smaller, more niche sports that can draw an audience. Overall, between just the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball, ESPN pays over $3.9 billion, with a B, per year. $1.9 billion to the NFL, $1.3 billion to the NBA, and $700 million to Major League Baseball. The NFL and Major League Baseball contracts run through 2021 and the NBA through 2025. Remember, except for the NBA, a lot of these contracts were long deals signed five or six years ago at a time when sports was very important in networks, but it didn't have the same importance that they had today. You know, we talked about this on the WWE show I did. You know, back a few years ago, comedies and dramas were still doing great ratings on network TV, but now live sports have incredibly strong ratings, both on cable and in networks. They're incredibly important for securing advertising. ESPN, in fact, I think, I think this is right. I think they have 19 of the top 20 rated cable shows ever. And when they started televising Monday Night Football, I think every game on their schedule that year ended up in the top 20 or 30 of all-time cable shows or some crazy statistic like that. You know, when with these college BCS bowl games, like the, the semifinals and, and championship finals or Monday night football games, like when you get out of that category, things change dramatically. And, and just so we get it out of the way, Monday night football is usually getting around 11 million viewers per game, you know, which for a cable network is just plain ridiculous. And especially the fact that you're getting it 16, 17 times a year. You know, BCS Bowl games, you only get two or three of those per year. I guess three counting, you know, the two semis and the national championships. They're sometimes hitting in the 20s or even as much as over 26 million viewers, I think, for last year's national championship game. Those are clearly in their own category. But let's, 
let's get into reality. Let's start with Major League Baseball. Again, ESPN pays about $700 million a year and gets essentially three games a week. Sunday night game viewership is between 1 and 2 million, mostly hovering around 1.5 million. Like maybe a New York, LA, or Boston game gets up to 2.2 million or something like that. But that's Sunday night's their prime inventory. Monday and Wednesday nights are getting in like the three to 400,000 viewer range, depending on the game. Now, there's no question Monday and Wednesday nights are not primetime TV spots, but, you know, neither is Saturday night. And even top ranks, lower ranking shows are clearly beating numbers like the Monday and Wednesday night baseball games. Let's take a closer look at college football. College football minus the bowl games are a complete wild card. Viewership numbers and contracts run all over the place. You know, some of the contracts were really long contracts signed, even if they were signed a while ago. I mean, they could be a complete steal of a deal right now, but the newer ones are really expensive. You know, and as we look at viewership, let's just take, for for an example, week 11 of last season saw Alabama versus Mississippi State do 7 million viewers on ESPN in primetime. Using that week at random, the Thursday night game was UNC Pitt. It did just over a million viewers. The noon game on Saturday, Arkansas LSU, did just over 2 million. The afternoon game, FSU Clemson, did just under 1.9 million viewers. And College Game Day in the morning did 2.1 million, which is really impressive for a studio show. But that was late in the season. More normal ratings for ESPN on a weekly basis would have one game that tops out you know, maybe between 4 and 5 million viewers and have other games in the 2 to 3 million range. In week 8, though, ESPN's largest audience didn't even hit 2.6 million viewers. And in week 3 and 4, they didn't have a single game get over 3 million viewers. So it's really all over the place. Some of these numbers, they're truly great. There's no doubt about it. And some of them are pretty good for a cable station, especially on a Saturday night. But like I said, like at the end of the day, even though some of them are deals, remember these contracts for college football, they're still really big. They're not in the billions, but they're conference by conference. So no matter which way you slice it, they're still expensive. And I think the crazy part with college football is once you get outside of the handful of games that truly matters each week, the ratings aren't all that much mind-blowing like the the game still cost a premium to air but the ratings aren't crazy even the best rankings that top rank has gotten on ESPN still don't compare to the best college football games but certainly the lower tiers of the college football games they're comparable to top rank is doing and I'm sure the fights are coming at a fraction of the price I've gone over the NBA on ESPN before and while there is more consistency and great demos watching the games, they're regularly doing numbers between 1.7 and 2 million viewers, sometimes a little more or less depending on the matchups. But again, remember, ESPN is paying $1.3 billion for this package per year, and they end up televising about 100 games per year counting playoffs. Like if you're doing the math, I didn't even do it right last time. That's more than I was even counting. It's like $13 million a game. Now that's an extreme oversimplification of the math. And I do want to emphasize here that playoff games are in their own category. Again, 
ESPN was getting, they were getting like six, seven, eight million viewers for the bigger playoff games. In that game seven for Celtics Cavs, they averaged over 13 million viewers and they peaked at 17. Those individual games can end up making the difference between your NBA year being just okay or whether you're truly making out with advertisers. So that part shouldn't be minimized at all, but it's still significant that the bigger boxing shows are doing just as well as regular season NBA games given the amount of money on that NBA contract. Now, these are all the major sports that ESPN does. And when you look at the numbers that Top Rank is getting, I'm not going to go through each individual show, like I said, but they're getting above 500,000 for the bad shows, sort of regularly getting in between six and 800,000 for the decent performing shows. And then they're getting almost a million viewers in a Crawford fight and then pretty big ratings in two of Lomachenko's fights over 1.7 million. And then there's Pacquiao Horn that got that huge rating over 3 million peaking well over four. When you look at all those numbers, you start to see why ESPN tore up the old deal and re-upped it for seven more years total. Especially at the price they were getting the content. You know, it's even now, it's rumored to be over $50 million a year. But to be fair, it's, it's tough to pin a real number down based on the ESPN Plus and library portions of the deal. So I don't, I hesitate to even put that number out. You can sort of see why ESPN is happy with everything. I mean, they're so happy, in fact, that Top Rank won a purse bid of over $1.6 million to get the Maurice Hooker-Alex Salcedo fight. And let me tell you guys, even a few years ago when Top Rank and ESPN, or Top Rank and HBO had a great relationship, Top Rank wouldn't be getting $1.6 million for that kind of a fight from HBO, and that's with the bigger HBO boxing budget. And I don't mean to say that that fight isn't worth the price of $1.6 million, I mean to say that the market, the current market, because it's not like that was the craziest bid, DAZN also bid over $1.5 million. The current market is allowing Top Rank to make bids like that because of how well the sport is doing. And further context here, I'm comparing boxing to major sports. When you look at what boxing is doing compared to niche sports, like let's take MLS, you're regular seeing numbers in the mid-200s or low 300,000 level for MLS soccer in terms of total viewership. And even the biggest games don't reach boxing's numbers. And there's lots of other niche sports that might occasionally hit five, six, seven hundred thousand 700,000 viewers for the bigger events, like maybe it's the NCAA championships in other sports, maybe it's some college basketball. Look, but on a regular basis, a lot of those, maybe let's put college basketball aside, that's still all over the place. All the other sports, though, they get much lower numbers when it's not their biggest events. I think when you start to do all the math for how much the big pieces cost, and then you look at what top-ranked boxing costs and the numbers and tonnage it regularly provides, it gets easier to comprehend why this makes sense for both parties. But let's look beyond the numbers and let's examine what it really means to treat top-ranked boxing like a league. Todd DeBuff talks about this all the time, and he's right to take it seriously. The, the obvious place to start is that almost every time the word boxing is mentioned on ESPN, they say top-ranked boxing. To that effect, the, the ultimate place you can take this is by looking no further than the UFC. 
they will be treated the same way, except that they're, they've already achieved, the UFC has already achieved such brand equity that most people say the UFC when they really mean MMA. Top Rank obviously wants the same thing with boxing. And it's not just a network commitment to constantly saying the phrase Top Rank Boxing on ESPN. It's ESPN showing more of a commitment to cover the sport. Sports Center, it's other shows like First Take, it's having fighters regularly appear as guests on those shows and where the hosts are actually educated on who the fighters are and having some kind of familiarity with them and the sport. It's presenting a top quality, well-manicured live show for the fans that really caters to the event. If we are seeing big-time boxing, then it should feel that way. And both the Lomachenko-Lenares and Crawford Horn fight certainly did feel that way for me. That's not just having multiple sets and a big promotion on other ESPN shows leading up to the fight, but it's smaller things. It's how the logos are presented. It's what the overall look, feel, and quality of the show are. What kind of announcers and other boxing experts you have and how they are given opportunities to show their knowledge. That kind of stuff really matters. It's shoulder programming, specifically for boxing, which ESPN is starting to do on Plus, but in my opinion still has a long way to go. It's taking many of the people that listen to a show, like Fistianatos, that are hardcore fans, and empowering them to be brand ambassadors with all kinds of assets that you cut together that they can consume and share. Most of you listeners are the types of people that inside your group of friends, your other friends rely on you to tell everyone whether this is a real big fight and if there's another one out there that's free on ESPN that they should be checking out. ESPN is starting to do all this, but they can definitely improve, no doubt. The final thing I wanted to talk about here was ESPN Plus and the overall strategy with top ranking ESPN Plus. ESPN Plus has a ways to go. I've, I've been a big supporter of it, but I want to make that point clear that they've really got some work to do. I've said this before numerous times on the podcast, but as a boxing consumer, you are on the forefront of this huge corporate battle between Disney and Netflix. And ESPN is where the or ESPN Plus, to be fair, is really where the initial skirmishes in this war are happening. There's a ton I don't like about the presentation of the app. They don't present each individual sport that well. And they're having real issues on separating content that's exclusive to ESPN Plus from content that's just ESPN. While that might seem trivial to some, it's huge for me because ESPN Plus is something that I can get on a subscription to like just using my computer and I can start streaming any of their exclusive content. But if there's a game that's on regular ESPN and you make me sign into my cable provider so I can watch, then you don't you don't really have a great distinction between what is ESPN and what is ESPN Plus. And I don't really like that. That's the way the app works right now. The counterpoint to that is everything I see on Netflix, I can consume. If I didn't have cable and I was just had ESPN Plus, there's lots of programming on the app that's actually not available to you. I don't like any of that. And I'm sure DAZN will be the same way as Netflix. If it's on there, you can watch it. There's no weird login that you have to do with the cable company or anything like that. It's also tough to find certain fights on ESPN+. You have to search through a weird schedule function. 
it's not philosophically like really what this app should be about. Like ESPN is now getting direct information from the consumer and it should know when I log in that I'm personally a huge boxing fan and it should make it easy for me to get the content that I want. Plus should know right away which content is geared towards me, which content they think I'm not a fan of, and then most importantly, which content out there they think I'm actually a strong candidate to like and I'm just not aware yet. This interface is really going to allow me to like their platform more if they can suggest things to me that I like. Especially now that we'll start soon seeing MMA on ESPN Plus in 2019 along with some other niche sports, it'll be essential for ESPN to cross-promote them correctly and find that right mix of sports to keep subscribers happy. Specifically for the boxing program, I would also like to see a better distinction for what programming goes where. Here's what I really mean by that, and I think this is probably the most important takeaway during this whole podcast. Right now, ESPN and Top Rank have yet to articulate a real strategy for what fights go where. And I think that's okay for the time being, but they do need to fix that coming soon. And here's the nuts and bolts of it. Pacquiao and Crawford have each fought once on ESPN and once on ESPN Plus during this deal. And Lomachenko has fought three times all on ESPN, two of which had major promotion behind those fights. Now, is it going to just be sometimes they fight on ESPN with a bigger built-in audience and sometimes they go behind the plus paywall? It's real important for their careers to have them fight both on regular ESPN and ESPN Plus, but what is that distinction going to be? What does the consumer get by subscribing to ESPN Plus? Now, I say all this, so far I've been really happy with the content. Even though I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the platform and how it works, I love the content. I love that I'm paying five bucks a month and I've gotten Crawford versus Horn and Pacquiao versus Matisse. If Top Rank was still with HBO, it's a virtual guarantee that one, if not both of those fights, would have been on pay-per-view for 70 bucks a pop. And they're fights that I want to watch, but I definitely don't want to pay $70 for. Overall, what we've seen this with this Top Rank deal is a tiered system of fights. There's that very top tier where they're getting really big numbers that compares to the NBA regular season games you know, with like Pacquiao Horn or Lomachenko Rigondo, Lomachenko Linares. Then there's that meat and potato level of card, 600 to 750,000 viewer range. You know, you're seeing Oscar Valdez and Dog Bay and Zerdo and Beltran, host of other, some guys with great talent, some of them really solid, many times decent matchups on paper. You know, you're also getting plenty of squash matches, but for the amount of cards that ESPN is asking for, I'm not complaining that much. You get a few mulligans here and there. Not all of those fights are appointment viewing for me, but I'd rather have it and then watch it whenever I want. And then you have this tier, sort of a third tier. It's foreign fights on ESPN Plus that are really meant for the hardcore fans who are just really psyched that now we have a way to watch these fights where otherwise we'd be searching for some crazy YouTube stream. And I think this lowest tier is actually really important because it keeps us psyched. You know, 
I don't need to watch all those fights, but so far I've watched a few of them, and I really like the fact that I get them and I can find them on ESPN Plus and watch them. And even if they happen a few hours earlier, ESPN Plus doesn't show you the results ahead of time. Actually, I really like that feature. What Top Rank should be doing with Plus is figuring out what the content is that truly belongs on the platform long term. For the time being, I like getting more on there, but more isn't always better. Is Plus going to be the home for that third tier of foreign rights fights, plus maybe an occasional card of that mid-tier quality once in a while, and then a couple times a year when the customers get an an A-level, A-list event? Because I've heard really smart people say that while we got Crawford Horn, matches like those should be on ESPN, while matches like Lomachenko and Norris where they're matched much closer and it's a better fight, those are the ones that should be on ESPN+. It should be like the higher-level big-name squash squash matches on ESPN and then those tougher matchups on ESPN+. I don't know. I mean, I think top-ranking ESPN still have time to figure this out. Maybe it is okay just to have the guys rotate, but I'd love to know more of what I'm getting on ESPN Plus. I realize in this first year they're figuring it out. And when you're figuring it out at $4.99 a month or $50 a year and you're giving me those bigger fights, especially like God, Pacquiao Matisse, that would have been that would have been for sure an HBO pay-per-view fight. I mean, I love that that I'm getting the whole package for less than one pay-per-view fight like that. But what I definitely don't want to happen is for these level of fights to end up on traditional pay-per-view. If my ESPN Plus subscription ends up with like allowing me to watch fights, and I'll use Showtime as an example here, the level of Wilder Fury and Spence Garcia without having to pony up $70 for them, then I'm psyched. I've said this a lot, but all too often in the past five years, we've had fights that ended up on pay-per-view that have done less than 200,000 buys. I've also talked a lot about how the cable systems have screwed over fight fans. But this is really where the running themes of this podcast comes together. The advantage that ESPN Plus and, quite frankly, DAZN have in this respect is they don't have to pay anything to the cable companies. So these level of pay-per-views should fit within their economic model of what Plus and DAZN are doing. And if ESPN Plus continues to deliver on that type of programming, then it's going to be a success. Because as great as Showtime has been this year, I'm going to have to pay as much for Wilder Fury and Spence Crawford, or sorry, Spence Garcia, as I will for the entire year of fights from Showtime. That's crazy if you think about it. $12 a month times 12 months a year is $144. And those two pay-per-views that I'm not really that excited about, especially... Spence Garcia, they're going to cost me 140 bucks. $50 a year for with ESPN Plus to get the fights on that level, that really works for me, and I don't need too many of them, like I've said earlier. One more fight on the level of Pacquiao Matisse and Crawford Horn, and if you keep doing three or four of those a year, plus the other stuff, and I'm good. Present it better, and I'm loving it. But the big question is, what is that dividing line? What is that fight that ESPN does on pay-per-view rather than plus? 
Is it Spence Crawford? If Mikey Garcia doesn't end up fighting Spence or beating Spence, is it Lomachenko Garcia? Is it Pacquiao Lomachenko? We'll need the answer to that soon, and it'll be an important one to get right because sublevels matter way more to Disney than getting some dollars for a pay-per-view fight on a one-night basis. More importantly for my life, as well as for all the listeners, the success of ESPN Plus depends on delivering us that right mix of quality. More isn't better. Better is better. And I'm willing to pay for it if they do a great job. All right, let's move on to the preview section, where on August 18th, we have some... I used this phrase too much this this episode, but we have a lot of squash matches that involve... It might actually make some interesting TV, given some of the names involved. The ESPN card features Brian Jennings versus Alexander Dimitrenko, Jesse Hart versus Mike Gavronsky, and Shakur Stevenson versus Carlos Ruiz. No odds out on these fights yet, but none of these should be close. I think all the A-sides are interesting fighters, but none of them are great matchups. And in fact, these fights, they're really more to see if Jennings, Hart, and Stevenson can look good and get some KOs. Also on the 18th, there's a card from Belfast where Carl Frampton is fighting Luke Jackson and Tyson Fury is up against Francesco Pianetta. Frampton is about a 40 to 1 favorite and Fury about 80 to 1. So these are really the exact same deal as the ESPN fights, except with bigger names and longer odds. Now, if they're all KOs and there's a bunch of callouts in the fights in the ring afterwards, especially with Fury and Wilder, this entire day might end up being pretty interesting. Um, and I guess to be fair to ESPN, this was supposed to be Jennings versus Joseph Parker, which to me is actually a pretty interesting fight, and the winner would certainly have been up for a big opportunity somewhere. I would have loved to see that one. August 25th on ESPN, Ray Beltran versus Jose Pedraza and Isaac Dogbe versus Hidenori Otake. This, to me, is a legit card. They do not have odds out yet on these fights, but Beltran versus Pedraza is a really good matchup stylistically for me. I think you'd probably have to make Beltran a small favor here, but either fighter can definitely win this. And there's also real stakes involved, too, because the winner will likely get Lomachenko, and though I think neither fighter is close to Loma's class, there will be a nice payday there, and more importantly there's a chance to get Lomachenko coming off an injury and a bit of a layoff, which is probably the best recipe that you're ever going to have to beat him or at least look very good against him. I'm also very intrigued to see Dog Bay fight again. And these fights, I think they'll all end up being TV friendly. You know, August is not usually a big month for TV ratings, but I'm excited to see what kind of rating these shows, uh, these shows do for ESPN. Um, ending on a high note, I want to thank... All of you people out there for feedback on my article for The Ring, you'll cons- you'll continue to see more of that coming from me. I've got a couple more planned. Um, I've also had a lot of great questions on email or Twitter, some of which I've addressed um, just sort of with like one-line answers. But next episode, I want to do another q and I did one earlier, and it went pretty well. Um, so I'll try to get back and, and talk about some of the questions that I've had on the show but ask away if you have any more, or if you ask one a couple weeks or you know a month or two ago, just ask it again. Find me on Twitter and ask for me. You know, again, email fistinados at yahoo.com or at fistinatospod is Twitter. Um, I've even had people, I think I've mentioned this before, ask find me on LinkedIn and ask me questions there. 
I don't care. Ask, ask away. Um, I want to use the next episode as well to talk about Canelo and Triple G2, but I don't want to overdo that in the buildup because we've talked about it a lot on the show, just from all the craziness with the postponement and a few months ago. But anyways, back to the action. We've had a lot of fights in the month of August, and we usually don't get a lot of fights. And maybe one of these cards over the next two weeks will actually be good. I, I, you know, You heard me on August 25th. I'm optimistic about that. So look, enjoy the fights. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Did you get what you was looking for? Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.